You are listening to Explore by the Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Welcome to Explore by the Cycling Podcast. My name is Lionel Burney. This episode was actually recorded a year ago in early March 2022 when I travelled to Cookham in Berkshire to meet Phil Cavill. Phil is the author of The Midlife Cyclist, a book I read because I fitted squarely into the demographic it was aimed at. Mid to late 40s, but still active and with no desire to slow down. In fact, quite the opposite. When I spoke to Phil, I was a few weeks away from setting off for the first stretch of the Tour de Cos ride in Scotland, which would require being in shape to ride 100 kilometres a day for more than a week, something I'd not done in quite a while. I'd also started to notice I'd become more susceptible to aches and pains on and off the bike. My weight had crept up, and although I'd done something about that, I was conscious that I was not as invulnerable as I'd felt in my 20s and 30s. With so many of us hoping to grow old gracefully in Lycra, what can we do to stay fit and healthy, and perhaps even get faster despite getting older? Before we hear my conversation with Phil, a word about our partnership with MAP, who designed and made the beautiful Cycling Podcast jersey, which was released last year. The jersey and the complete range of Cycling Podcast accessories are in stock now at map.cc. I mentioned in our Strada Bianca episode, MAP's Pursuit of Progression campaign, which is inspiring riders to share their goals for 2023. And I asked our listeners to send in their aims for the coming season. Friend of the podcast, Jamie Roberts, has written in with a fantastic trip that he's got planned for the end of April. He's cycling from Suffolk, catching a ferry to San Marlo in northern France, and then cycling all the way to Barcelona, taking 13 days to ride 1,300 kilometres. And when he gets there, he's going to see the opening night of Bruce Springsteen's European tour with his daughter. He says it's partly a nostalgic trip because he first saw the boss in Montpellier back in 1985. In his email, he also wrote about seeing the Tour de France for the first time as a 19-year-old in 1981. He was hooked immediately, and here he is, 42 years later, planning this ride, which he says is inspired in part by our Tour de Cos series, and also by Explore episodes we've done featuring Emily Chappell, Rupert Guinness, and Timmy Mallet. Jamie also passed on his thoughts about Richard Moore and says he'll be riding with the spirit of the buffalo. Well, it sounds like an amazing ride, Jamie. Hopefully you will report back when you make it to Barcelona. Best of luck and enjoy every moment. Not so much born to run as born to ride. A pair of Cycling Podcast map socks will be on their way to you in the post. And if anyone else wants to share their goals for 2023, email me at contact at thecyclingpodcast.com. Thank you very much for inviting me to your home, Phil. A lovely spot here, right by the Thames, although the river does look quite high. You were telling me that occasionally the river and your back garden become one. Yes, yes, it does. This time last year, Lionel, we were fortunate enough to have the river about four or five feet up from where it is now, overflowing onto the garden. So we were actually canoeing out to our cars, otherwise we couldn't go to school and work. Today, I think not so much. I think we'll be fine. We will be fine. It's the first day the sun shone this year, it feels like to me anyway. But uh, I should say we're in we're in Buckinghamshire, aren't we? Not far from Marlow. Not far from Marlow, yeah. And we're by the River Thames. Uh, we're downstream from Marlow, in fact, yeah. And there are a few signs of your interest in cycling. There's a picture of Eddie Merckx, and I think that's Patrick Circu 
there in six day action lovely black and white shot there i really like the almost studio lighting on that picture there isn't it uh wouldn't hazard a guess as to where that is but i'm going to anyway probably ghent isn't it i would have thought yeah ghent yes this this is a series that um this is a great big calendar that Merckx did about 25 years ago. And my wife, who you just met, Donna, took all the pictures from the calendar and uh, pretty much framed them all. Uh, and they're all around the house. And they're my favourite pictures, actually. They're my, my favourite cycling pictures. And there's one from the Paris Bay in the hall there, which I'll show you on the way out, which is just absolutely beautiful. Um, but they're all very iconic. So what's been your relationship with cycling is it something that you got into when you were young yeah i got into it young uh, and then started to race uh, raced for many many years i was never that good actually lionel to be honest with you i was just a good club cyclist but i just loved the life i loved the friendships i loved the training actually not so much the training but i really loved the racing uh, and i loved the variety we would do a mountain bike race one weekend and a road race the next weekend and then a time trial or a four up time trial uh, and I was saying to my wife this morning, it was just a brilliant way to live. Great friendships, brilliant friendships, club mates, teammates, and, and a great way to live. And this is going back into the 80s and 90s. And of course, cycling was niche. It was tiny. Um, and so, you know, it just felt like we had this kind of very underground secret club. These weird people doing this strange, strange things early on Sunday mornings. It was brilliant. I loved it. it you know, my best memories are those getting up at five in the morning and meeting the meeting the guys out for a, do a four-up time trial in Essex or something, come 27th and everyone's happy, you know. It's brilliant. What was the pinnacle of your racing career then, Phil? Ah, oh, there is no pinnacle, uh, Lionel. I wasn't, I, there isn't, you know, that, that, I didn't, ever, I was never that talented. You know, I don't know about you, but there was that moment where you start cycling and the, you, you get, you know, your sort of speed of progression is so rapid that you say, oh my God, I, this can keep going on this trajectory forever and I can be professional. And we all have that moment. And then very quickly after a couple of years, you kind of, everyone just naturally plateaus and that, you know, you more or less that's where you are. And that was me. I was, I was very, very good. Actually, let's take one, let's take one very out. I was reasonably good at a circuit in East London called Eastway. I loved Eastway. I absolutely adored it. I love everything about it, where it was, its proximity to London, uh, the view you got from Eastway, the track. Eddie Merckx raced there in 1978. Um, I loved everything about it. It just suited me. It was a mile circuit, up and down. Uh, it was quite a technical circuit. So I would always ride pretty well there. Um, and I was what's called an Eastway, Eastway first cat. So I was a first cat only because... Of Eastway. I mean, take Eastway away from me and I was no more than a good third or fourth cat. But just because I could ride Eastway well, I could accumulate points. So all my best memories are of doing well at Eastway or trying to do well at Eastway, which is the beginning of the book where I try too hard and pass out and fall off. So they're all, all my, my, my pinnacles are all about Eastway, really. And it's gone now, which is a tragedy. It has gone now. Yeah, I miss Eastway as well. They replaced it with Hog Hill, which has got a massive hill in the middle, which um, for me, uh, I never enjoyed racing at Hog Hill. I knew I had basically three quarters of a lap before things got really difficult. Um, but what about Hillingdon, which is just sort of down the road from here, really, isn't it, on the way into London? Uh, you, yeah. Were you racing when that came along? Yep, raced there. Uh, proud to say I raced there once with Bradley Wiggins. In that would be in 98, probably. Yeah, I quite liked Hillingdon. And it worked better for me geographically. It just, I thought, I 
thought think that Hillingdon is a is a soft circuit. It's very wide. It's not that technical, uh, and it's flat really. So it, you know the racing tends to be different. Um, Crystal Palace was the other way, just essentially up a one in ten and then down a one in ten. Hog Hill, I, I'm too old to have raced. I mean, I could make a comeback, uh, but I just foresee that Hog Hill is too hard for me. Uh, although we used to do back in the day in the late eighties, early nineties, we would do a chain gang around Hog Hill before it was Hog Hill. So we, it's called the Hog Hill Chain Gang. Imaginatively enough, and we'd ride out and do five or six lap of that area, uh, and I, I assume what is now the big hill, uh, and then ride back into Hackney where we all lived. Um, so I know the area, but I've just never raced the circuit. But Hillingdon I liked, and I used to do okay at Hillingdon, um, but it, I, I, I always went along there, and there was always too many crashes. Or um, So it kind of put me off a little bit, uh, and Mrs Cavell didn't like it, and I kept coming back bloodied and bruised and battered. Uh, yeah, there's uh, there's a point where the phrase "the weekend warriors" kind of you know loses its meaning a little bit, doesn't it? Especially if you've got to get up for work on the yeah. on the Monday. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, I've got to ask also: the Archer Grand Prix is really is on the doorstep, isn't it? That's only going to be a few miles as the crow flies. Yes. Uh, difficult old circuit that. That's right in the heart of the Chilterns, but roads that I know as, uh, probably as well as you do. Yeah, the Archer Grand Prix, I, I think, used to be over at Winchmore Hill. I don't know if it still is, but and I, I used to, I rode the, I either rode that or the supporting race one year. And it, um, and my other race that I used to race was the t- Tour of the Chilterns. I don't know if they still run that now, but I remember I did it when Roger Hammond beat Matt, what's his name? Does commentary. It'll come to me in a minute. Matt Stevens. Him. So it was Matt Stevens and Roger Hammond and, and I think, Hammond beat Stevens. I can't even tell you what year this was. Why I used to do it, I don't know, because it it was so inappropriately difficult for me. But it started about 10 miles in that direction. And I would go and do it because I loved the course and the route. And it started in Prince's Ridge and went up to Bledlow Ridge and 16 times. It's just, it was astonishing. But it was so difficult. And But I just, there's something about it that amu- it was so difficult that it was funny. And I would go and ride it and come, you know, 147th. But still loved it. So that was, you know, but so, there, yeah, I, I guess uh, I do love all the roads around here. Although I'm just not a good enough climber to race them and never and never have been. I mean, you mentioned there you've Bradley Wiggins won. Uh, Matt Stevens was, uh, grew up in Bushy and raced for the Hemel Hempstead yeah. Club. Roger Hammond, I think, went to school in Amersham. Yes. Uh, sort of a Venn diagram of, of British cyclists there. So all overlapping. And I guess, yeah, the Archer course is sort of the centre of that. Yeah. A geographical Venn diagram. You were saying when I arrived here that you actually grew up two doors down uh, from here. So this is your local, your local patch. But life has taken you further afield, I think. Yeah. So I grew up two doors downstream, coincidentally, <clears throat> and um, and then moved away when I was eighteen and never came. You know, came back to visit my parents, who moved away twelve, ten, twelve years ago. Um, and then we came back, my daughter was born, um, and just, we just sort of linked up all the families are the same along here. A lot of the families are the same. They don't, the houses don't sell. They just get passed down the generations. So a lot of the kids are here now. So my daughter's now playing with the kids of the people I grew up with, which is quite, quite strange, but lovely. Uh, but yeah, it's just a, this is like a little enclave here of people who don't mind their houses flooding every one, you know, a couple of years and are happy to, 
bail things out and manage with candles and you know uh you know live like castaways which we are frankly so cycling wasn't uh well you weren't quite good enough to no. make cycling into a career let's put it nowhere near good enough i, I was i was playing playing the perfect guest i was being being polite there but um i mean did you want to get into sport in some way or into the sport of cycling or was that an ambition or were you, did you know your limitations early enough to know that your career would have to be in another direction yeah I, I knew very early actually to be fair and i didn't have the mentality to be a professional cyclist. i didn't enjoy training enough i look at some of the clients that i work with some of the people that we work with you know their mentality is different to mine i didn't have the physical ability but i didn't have the mental ability either you know, I, I loved the social side of it. And I loved the fact that it became my sport. I wasn't very good at sport at school. I wasn't a good runner like you. I wasn't a natural athlete at school. Um, and, you know, it's easy to write yourself off after that experience. A lot of kids do because sport at school is all about sprinting and catching balls and throwing balls and all that nonsense. And I was rubbish. And, and when I found cycling, I wasn't bad at it which for me was a great starting point. It's like, okay, well, that's, that's, that's job one. I'm not crap at this. And then you, you know, you, 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 you start it and you enjoy it and you get a bit better. It's like, I mean, you know, wow, I'm actually okay at this. And so that, and that's what I loved. It was transformative in that sense. All my school friends had stopped being football stars and, you know, whatever they did and started to pile on the pounds. And it's like it was, and I had the sort of Peter Pan. So I, every year I got fitter and fitter and better and better. And they were kind of getting bigger and more unfit, you know, into my thirties. Uh, and that's, and that was the power of cycling. It kind of, it gave me, it was a home. It was church, you know, and it always has been for me. It's always been like that. Just this, you know, this home, you know, uh, and I see it in my clients and I see it in, you know, friends and colleagues where they've just, They've migrated to cycling. They've found it, um, and you know that's. I think that's the great democratization of this sport. I think it's brilliant at joining people and being a home for people who aren't pa- perhaps naturally good at sport. In fact, I would go as far as saying that people who weren't naturally good at sport at school may have something about their uh, musculoskeletal system that makes them good at cycling. Um, that's my proposition and I've got no evidence to back that up. Well, we might come on to that a little yeah. bit later. I, I probably need to correct the record here. I mean, when well, as you say I was a good runner, I mean, I was a decent school runner. I saw districts, um, district championship for the school or whatever, you know, participating, not, not at the front end. Um, but I did like running as a kid and I liked playing football and I liked cycling. Um, but I think, you know, through work, and, uh, and and particularly in the last sort of five or six years, um, my life changing a fair bit, becoming a parent um, and 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 piling on those pounds, uh, which I was talking to you about when I when I got here. Uh, I found a lot in the book that really resonated with me. It's the midlife cyclist, and I suppose the first question I had was, when does midlife begin? Because I don't think any of us really think of ourselves as middle aged. I certainly don't. Middle, my parents are still middle aged, and they're in their seventies. Is, is how my mentality works. I think, you know, age is a sort of concept. The cliche is it's just a number, but um, it sort of isn't because you do feel the onset of the creaks and the groans and the aches and the pains a bit, and realise that you have to be a bit more proactive in taking care of the the bits and pieces that we've been we've been given to get ourselves around with 
Yeah, that's quite right. And and there's something um, fundamentally dishonest about the title in the, in the sense that I wrote it because I'm 60. So if, if I'm a midlife cyclist, I need to live to 120. You know, that's extremely unlikely. So, yeah, we all tend to think of ourselves as being younger than we, than we are. Midlife in human biological terms is probably 15 um, because in the ancestral environment and certainly going all the way through to the industrial revolution agricultural revolution you know most people died very young 30 35 40 women would generally die in childbirth or typically die in childbirth so you know most people you know there was a, a small pe- amount of people who would go on to live to 40 and 50 but they were the outliers so genetically there was a predisposition there was a, a drive to m- make us live to 30 so we could have children, parent children, but there was no genetic drive beyond that. So middle age, up until you know a couple hundred years ago, would be fifteen, and then and the outs, you know you'd probably die between thirty and thirty-five. So we, in, in a sense, there's been this massive sociological shift, um, and w- what happens is we wash up on the shores of being forty-five, fifty-five, sixty-five, and we haven't had enough of exercise. So we want to continue exercise, but not just exercise. We actually want to do hard exercise that, that has performance as its goal. Uh, and not only that, we actually want to measure it as well. And that, that's, that's not only new in the last 200 years, that's new in the last 20. So that's, I mean, it's, a, it's a very, very small period of time that middle-aged people and beyond have been trying to make their bodies, you know, Olympic champions, at, you know, from 45 onwards. So I guess... The long, it's a very long answer to a very short question, but the, for this book, I suppose I'm aiming at, but my, my demographic here is 45 to 75, really. That's what, that's the age group I'm looking at. Um, so you just sneak into that, Lionel. Yeah, very, just that well, that's quite reassuring, actually. Yeah. Um, just to roll back a little bit, just tell me a bit about your career history because you you, you weren't a professional cyclist, no. but you've you've worked in cycling one way or another for a long time. But tell me, you know, what sort of route your career has taken? So, um, no, that's right. I was always raced, or you know, for a long time raced, many many decades raced, mountain bikes, road bikes, time trialing, everything, loved everything, cyclocross, um, and but CycleFit, which is a company that I. I co-founded with a gentleman called Julian Wall, who was a clubmate, teammate of ours. We both raced in the same club slash team, uh, and then we started that. Uh, we started that um, twenty-five years ago, um, and essentially that was looking at the relationship between the person and the bicycle um, in an analytical way, um, and thinking about that relationship, how you can make it more efficient, more, more powerful, more injury protection. Um, so. It's very fashionable now, but at the time when we started it, you know, it was, we really were snake oil peddlers, frankly. Um, But there was enough people out there who thought they're probably snake oil peddlers, but my knee hurts so much, I'm going to give it a try anyway. So, um, and that's how we started. So CycleFit started uh, late 1990s, early 2000s as a, as a service. Um, But that gave me unique access to a whole new cohort of people that were migrating to cycling from other sports that was the first wave you like if you like of, of, of people coming along saying i want to ride the tactical tour but i haven't done any exercise since i was 15 and i'm now 45 
So I was on the, if, I, if you like, I was on the front end of that relationship. So, okay, so let's, let's, let's wind that back and think about what we need to put in place to make, to allow you to ride the Atlanta tour in, in a year or two years time. And that was my core, that, that was our core client base, still is really. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. So what had, take, what had got you to that point? I mean, uh, did you have a, a, an expertise in, you know, um, biomechanics or, or, or any kind of, um, you know, uh, coaching or any, any of those realms at all? What was, uh, what was your career before you got into um, trying to help people sit on the bicycle a, a bit more efficiently and a bit more comfortably? Well, in, we had a mainstream shop. And it's just, it was because we were racing and we had a club and a team associated with the shop, we were just immersed in the race scene. So we, and then Jewel, Julian injured his knee, I injured my back. This would be going back 25, 30 years. And there was not very much, I don't know how, how long your career is in cycling line, but at the time there was not much known because it was such a secretive sport, like a backwater. You know, sports science came very slowly to cycling. You know, Peter Keane and Chris Boardman, you know, probably were the first, really. And around that time, you know, we were starting to think about bike fitting or not long after that. So it kind of, their foray into sort of sports science and cycling kind of, I guess, came into us by osmosis and we became interested in it. You know, that science had something, sports science and science had something could instruct cycling because before that cycling was just very traditional. You did, you know, you went out on the club run, you did what the older guys told you because they'd all done it before and they'd survived, hadn't they? So you kind of did what you were told, but sometimes that, that advice was not actually very constructive. So the idea behind us was we were going to look at all these, hold all these myths up to the light and say, okay, well, how many, how many of them hold water? And is there a better way to do things? Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking there as you're talking about that, my experience certainly in the late 80s and early 90s everything was um hand-me-down knowledge wasn't it and you'd you'd only have to get someone in the club who was kind of respected to say your saddle's too high and you'd put your saddle down or you know you watch the tour de france on tv and somebody's got their brake hoods tilted back and suddenly everyone's got their brake hoods tilted back and that was kind of the extent i mean i'm sure i'm i mean i've never been professionally bike fitted um to my bikes but i've got a kind of checklist in my head of what feels comfortable and i get myself set up in a similar way across all my bikes so make sure my shoe plates are in the same place on my shoes um and then sort of you know not tip x round them anymore but you know mark round where i feel they should be but with absolutely no evidence to support that whatsoever it's just what's comfortable for me and i do figure on you know one important criteria on in cycling particularly if you're doing a lot of hours on the bike comfort is a, an important factor but maybe i'm not set up for 
you know, real longevity or, uh, you know, performance gains or, or whatever. I mean, it would be interesting to find out, actually. But what are the things, can you tell at a glance when you see a cyclist that, you know, they could be sitting on the bike better, their saddle is too far forward or too far back or too far up or too far down, or or is it a bit more to it than that? Yeah, you'd hope after 30 years of doing this, I would have some insight and I do have some, yes, I do have some reasonable insight at first glance about what's going on for somebody. Not as much as my colleague, Julian. Uh, we work very differently. Jules went to film school. He's a brilliant artist. He's very visual. So he visually deconstructs things and visually deconstructs clients. And that's why when we do these, sometimes we do YouTube stuff where we kind of deconstruct a professional's biomechanics. Jules leads that because I can't see it fast enough. I go from the other way. I look at the client's history, their injury history, their training history, their life history, and what they're reporting to me, um, and look at them on the bike. So I, I have to triangulate off a few more, a few more, a bit of technology. Um, so we come, we, we often arrive at the same place, or generally arrive at the same place, but from different routes. He's just very, very visual, very good at technical drawing. And that's how he deconstructs things. I don't do it like that. But yes. Probably better than the average person on the street. If you ask me to deconstruct someone's position from a video or from a roadside, I'd be better than your average person. But I'm definitely not as good as him. So what are the fundamentals of a good bike fit? And, and if you could sort of have a checklist of three or four things that make it good or make it particularly bad uh, when you see somebody on, on the bike, that, you know, if you sorted that out, you, you'd be more comfortable and you'd be more efficient. It's interesting because I've just written a column um, on sleep and I, one of the people I was interviewing was a one of the world's foremost performance sleep experts a guy called Dr Charles Samuels in, in Canada and he said one of the things that he says and I think I've quoted it in the column is if you don't think you've got a problem with sleep you haven't got a problem with sleep which is very shorthand common sense it's like okay if you think you're sleeping properly you are and the same thing with bike fit if you if you are achieving all you want on the want on the bike you feel comfortable you feel efficient then you probably haven't got a problem and you just crack on. I mean, that's broadly my advice. If you actually sit there and think, no, do you know what? I feel absolutely great and always do and always have and I don't have any problems. I think, you know, one's got to say you probably haven't got a problem. But something else you said a minute ago I thought was really interesting about, um, in, you know, injuries and injuries and pain. The, the problem with trying to function or comfort – the problem with trying to function through pain is the body starts to make adaptations and all of those adaptations are under your radar. If I send you out for a run now, but you've got knee pain, you will limp on that leg. You'll, you'll change your biomechanics because your body's trying to protect you from that pain and you'll limp. Because it's running and you evolve to run, you'll feel it. You'll be like, I'm limping on that leg. I can feel that. It's, well, you probably will. It'd be a staccato kind of gait. On a bike, most of that is counterintuitive and completely under your radar. Your body will make these adaptations um, and you probably won't be aware of a lot of them. So you start to then ride in a different funky way. And that's the problem with cycling that you don't get with running, particularly. It's, a lot of it is so counterintuitive and the adaptations are mostly under the radar. Um, not always, you know, you get lower left back pain, but then you get the lower left back pain, which may shut off your left glute contraction, which then will lead to something else. And so it's, it becomes a cascade of problems. And that's when people come to see us because we then need to unpick them from first principles. Jules will unpick them visually and I will go back through the whole record. He will do the same thing and I'll go back through and say, okay, well that, that, 
you know, the, the how how does the foot issue then run all the way through the kinetic chain and then arrive at the lower back? So we kind of evolved, that. and that's the thing with cycling. So much of it is counterintuitive because you didn't evolve to do it in the first place. It's abstract. So do most people come to you with some kind of um, pain on the bike, something maybe that kicks in after a couple of hours or three hours or whatever? Or is is that why most people would make an appointment to see you? Yeah, I think that's true to say. I think given the way we work, I think often we're kind of the port of last resort. They've tried everything else and they've still got knee pain or back pain or hip pain. And, you know, they, they, they want us to try and unpick it. So I'm, I, as a guess, I would say 70% of people rock up at our doors with some kind of pain issue. And I mean, what sort of results do you see from the, you know, the diagnostic work you do and then the advice that you give? Yeah, so you have to, what you have to do is manage the, the person, um, you know, because we, we, what we can't do is, you know, if they've got an arthritic knee, I can't replace their knee for them. Um, but what I can do is possibly amend their biomechanics so their, their, the arthritic knee is not a problem on the bike. But we also have a, a world tour physician who we work with who does clinics at Cycle for every week. So they'll probably go and see Dave and then Dave will say, scan the knee and say, yes, you've got arthritis in the knee. Um, and here's how I think we should try and control that and manage it on the bike. Or it might be they see our physio, Nicola, or they see our podiatrist, Mick. So what you have to tr- sometimes do is bring in a range of assets. Um, we might be the first port of call and we probably the what last port of call. But on the way, there's going to be waypoints. Um, that's in a complex case. I mean, six, seven out of ten case people that come in, we'll just manage it ourselves. Um, but then there's always 25, 30 percent where we need to bring in more resources because there's no point in pretending you've got all the answers when you haven't. Um, I can't see someone's arthritis in their knee. It needs to be diagnosed by somebody else. So I asked if there were any kind of basic fundamentals of good or bad bike fit. And I, I suppose just while you were making us a coffee there, I was, I was thinking about the professional peloton. And it's unthinkable that the top riders wouldn't be bike fitted in, you know, the wind tunnel and with all of the um, the videoing technology and the biomechanics kit that they've got available. And yet we see a variety of different positions. Uh, we don't, I mean, I'm thinking just the races I've watched recently. No one's telling Tish Banut, you've got to flatten your back out so you're like Filippo Ghana. He is how he is and that's how he rides. And I guess that's a combination of efficiency and comfort and all, all the rest of those factors. Um, but is there anything you pick up when you watch the pro races and 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 apply to the type of work that you're doing? Do, are there things that you can learn just from watching? I mean, these are the best riders in the world, um, but do you spot some good positions and less good positions? Yeah, we really do. It's our literally our favourite hobby. <laughs> so we Tour de France and Grand Tour and Spring Classics, we have a moment where we all, all the staff, we all gather around the TV and watch what's going on and Jules leads it. Um, because Jules has got such a great eye, better than all of us, and he picks these things out and then we deconstruct it a different way. Um, but absolutely. And then sometimes they're doing things for thoroughly laudable reasons that are individual to their own biomechanics, and sometimes they're just doing nutty stuff, you know, that, that someone's told them or they, I don't know. There's some bonkers stuff out there that, you know, that is, doesn't have any intellectual or uh, clinical underpinning. They're just doing it and getting away with it or not getting away with it. Um, but it's literally our favourite pastime. In cycling, 
with the lateral movement as well and the, the way the ankle moves and the fact that the whole thing's going round and round in circles, you know, a hundred times a minute, there's an awful lot that can be going... It doesn't take... You know, you can be out by a tiny amount uh, and and having, I guess, a bigger effect elsewhere in the body or just... Uh, is it a case of just, you know, learning bad habits and just getting... That becomes how you pedal. That becomes your motion. Some people can get away with... Some people can get away with malcalibration on the bike. There's certain professional riders out there who who have the innate ability to mop up lots of poor calibration and poor posture and all the rest of it, and they just get away with it. And there's other people out there who can't. Uh, and a colleague of mine, Phil Burt, who used to work for British Cycling and Sky and... Um, and he, you know, he had this, he has this phrase, which I quote in the book, you know, where you've got micro adjusters and macro absorbers, which is a lovely way to think about it. Uh, and that's absolutely right. Um, and so when you get to the foot, when we're looking at the foot, we're, when we're working with the foot, we're trying to stop any lateral movement, not float, not side to side. You don't want to do that particularly. What you want to do is make sure the foot is held in the shoe and doesn't move laterally. So it doesn't rock. Um, we don't want that rocking motion because once you start rocking at the foot, then it goes all the way up through the up through the to the knee, which is the next joint up, and then above that, it, next joint up from that is the hip. So we want to try and lock that in in a natural way, in accordance with someone's natural foot posture. And that's you know, it's all entirely abstract because we didn't evolve to do this. This is, and I think I bring it up in the book. It's a Victorian invention, which we've now tried to perfect over 150 years. Um, and, and so it sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. And, and now, which is being used as a, a vehicle for elite performance, where the, the margins between the first, the best and the second best are, you know, incredibly small. Um, I'm just going to ask one more on, on the kind of the, the aesthetics, because cycling is a very aesthetic sport isn't it you know everything about the bike we know what looks good i mean fashions change and what have you but the kit the bike the helmets the shoes you know you you can oh that guy looks good or you know they look good on a bike um and i'm wondering how much of that is uh, applies to the actual biomechanics of it you see someone on a bike that just looks like a natural um because i'm thinking of somebody like dan martin who didn't look particularly good on a bike you know he had the the rocking up and down head movement the bobbing yeah which i mean lots of people you see riders riding like that um and i think i must be honest i think i hope i don't do that i I mean i don't know really maybe i do i don't i have a sense that i don't but um, maybe i do um and yet he was able to climb extremely well win grand tour stages and what have you so um there's got to be some kind of line where actually sort of innate talent and, and, and ability. Um, I mean, I'm trying to get to the core of whether or not he was um, world-class in spite of that unorthodox movement or whether that unorthodox movement is for him perfectly orthodox. I, I never, we never worked with Dan Martin, so I, I can't tell you. I, I can't tell you. Um, I th- I'm going to speculate now. Um, sorry, Dan Martin, if I'm completely off market. But I honestly think that Dan Martin was one of those athletes that just tried unbelievably hard, had a phenomenal, you know, ability to just mop up pain. 
And what we saw with him when he was under stress was it, it wasn't worth, you know, he w- wasn't worth the most compact and neatest rider in the world. But my God, you got a sense of how hard that man was trying, which was for the spectator, you know, wonderful. You know, it, the worst thing in the world is when it's all, it's so contained, you can't see anything. Like Miguel and Durain was the past master, wasn't he? Just, you know, probably was in as much pain as everybody else, but you just couldn't see it. You know, it's just, he just had that kind of blank look on his face and his beautiful biomechanics and everything was entirely composed and you couldn't see any pain. Whereas Dan Martin, I think that was all visible, wasn't it? It was all there, you know, still is. Um, so I don't know. Um, I'm trying to think. I, I, I don't think, I think, I don't think he had the worst biomechanics in the world. I just think that you get to that point where you're just trying to overcome your natural kind of red line and it's shit or bust. And I think he, he quite frequently got to that point where it was just, he was throwing everything at it. And it was great to see, you know. Has most of this been, you know, uh, either injury prevention or, um, you know, just trying to make the, the, the relationship between the rider and the bike just that little bit more efficient just to gain, you know, maybe you know, a couple of watts here or there? Or what exactly would you be looking for in a relationship with someone who clearly is already extremely good, world-class at cycling? Yeah, so a lot of that would be a lot of that would be, would be maintenance. You know, they're changing shoe sponsor or pedal sponsor, which can be quite traumatic for professional cyclists. So you know that that has to be managed. They either manage it inside the team or they come to us, and then you know we'll look at that. Or it's a new position; they need a TT position, or you know they're moving from cross to road or road to cross. So everything, you know, all, everything is always nine tenths closed off. It's just that one tenth that, you know, suddenly becomes an open subject because something's changed. Um, and so it's you're spending two or three hours um, with them, um, you know, really kind of forensically focusing on something very, very small. You're changing something to a tiny degree, you know, so it really is, you know, changing something and, and hope to get a half a percent of increase in efficiency, power, performance, etc. You're looking for tiny, tiny things. Because, as you say, it's already done, you know. Um, Tom Pickup was really exciting because uh, we were working with him at a time when he was, you know, moving from cyclocross and then doing road. And then we worked with him on his TT position just, bef- just, just before he went and won the World Junior uh, TT championships so these were all new things for him new maybe not new things but certainly we're just prescribing them and and, and and getting all this stuff documented that was really exciting it wasn't me that was Julian did that TT position which is brilliant um, so yeah it it's an interesting it's a little bit different working with the professional guys because you're just working on tiny tiny little tiny things tiny things often it's foot control so you, our podiatrist is making um, orthotics for them, carbon orthotics, taking a cast of their foot and then actually making a prescription orthotic based on that cast, um, which is good for them because they can transfer it between shoes and like the prescription goes with them, if you like. I mean, we've talked a lot in the podcast recently about the time trial positions. I mean, yeah. it's been a story simply because, well, Egg and Banal crashed in training on a time trial bike and there's a lot of talk about the extremes that those positions push the riders to and the fact that they have to practice that position can't just rock up at the tour de france time trial stage and hope to have that completely dialed in and and they can't do all of the training clearly in the wind tunnel or on a motor racing circuit or what have you um but just give me an indication of how extreme some of those positions are now i mean there must be a point where you get to the point where well it would be more aerodynamic but it wouldn't be sustainable over 45 minutes and, and it's just trying to hit that sweet spot i'm assuming 
Yeah, that's, you used exactly the right word, sustainable. And we think, we think of it in terms of resilience. Is the body resilient to the demands we're about to place upon it? And if the body is not resilient, then don't do it, because if it's not resilient, they won't stay in that position. They'll move around it. And the, the very best people at time trialling are generally quite flexible people, and they can put their body, fold their body origami-like into this position and still produce very close to their maximum power. And other people, other other athletes, pro athletes, just don't have those ranges of motion. Therefore, when they fold their body into this position, they start to lose power and efficiency. Um, and the director sportives, you know, know this. This rider will, you know, will will struggles with the time trial because they, you know, their, their body as soon as they bring themselves into this aggressive position, fold themselves, shrink wrap themselves into this position, they start to leak power, and others don't. Um, and so then you start to have them, well, what can we do to that rider to try and stop them leaking power when you shrink wrap them? And that is all about strength and conditioning. It's all about, you know, make, giving them range, greater ranges, hip inflection ranges, hamstring ranges, hip, um, so that they can fold themselves into this position and, and not leak as much power. Um, uh, but I, that, that, I'm not sure what you think about this movement to take away the, the time trial, you know, there's a strong movement to try and think about. They just do the time trial on a road bike. I'm completely split on that. I love the drama of the TT and the, the you know, the, these kind of futuristic bikes and the funky positions they're in. But I can also see it would actually be quite an honest, democratic mano mano if they were just on standard road bikes. I, I'm completely split on that one. As an experiment, I would do a grand tour, and you could only take one bike, unless you wreck it, you know, in which case. But you only take one bike. And the, what riding one position, so you can't be swapping everything around. You can't be swapping wheels and things. So you wouldn't have TT bikes. I would take away power meters and I would take away radios. And it's like every day, go out there and play the game. It's a game. Go and play it. And, you know. So, so all the tech and development has to be done in, in training and then it's just the athletes on their own. That's right. They've got to ride with their heads. They've got to ride with their legs. And they can use as much science and nutrition and all that stuff, sports science, you know, in training. And in preparation, but come the game, it's game head on. Oh, I mean, I can hear the the discussion broadening out here. But yeah, I mean, you're not you're only allowed a cheese baguette. You're not allowed any kind of sports nutrition product or anything. I mean, there'll be a queue at the blacksmith when when they realise that they can't fix their carbon forks. I'm not going that antediluvian. I'm sort of, <laughs> I'm sort of fixing it around about I don't know 1992, 93 before Motorola brought out the radios. But then I'm a hopeless romantic with these things, so, you know. You've talked there quite a bit, Phil, about the elite end and the tiny, tiny changes. And it just makes me wonder whether with ordinary, slightly wobblier cyclists like me, I'm talking sort of body shape wise, um, you might look at us and go, well, there are actually quite radical changes needed. But how quickly can you make those changes? Because I'm imagining if you, if you radically change somebody's position on a bike, you might you use the phrase unpick things but you might go too far too quickly and, and unintentionally cause additional problems. Is that how it works or is that too simplistic a way of me looking at it? No, it's not simplistic. You, and that's why you've got to be considering lots of different information, someone's injury history, sporting history, aspiration, how they present to you on the day. So you, we put them through a, a screen of flexibility, ranges of motion, stability, symmetry, you know, everyone when they come in has that screen. So we're, you know, we're bringing all this information, and a, and a session with us is three hours long. Is you know, it's just 
a deluge of data we're getting in about you, which we're, you know, somehow some picking up with technology, some picking up with just literally putting you on the physio plinth and testing ranges of motion. Um, and then, then you have to make a judgment, like you were saying, do we make this change? If we make this change, what's the likely um, other unintended consequences of that change? Will the person be able to tolerate that change? We, if we put the saddle height up two centimetres because it's two centimetres too low, what does that do to the stress on the hamstring? What does that do to the calf and the hamstring where they cross the back of the knee? What does that do to the ankle? So you have to make those judgments. Now, fortunately, after many decades, those judgments, you know, you've got a bit of, you know, heritage background experience where you can say, well, you know, I've done this a thousand times before. And when we put the saddle up, two centimetres when someone had a hamstring range of X, it went fairly well or it didn't go fairly well and then we'll put it up one centimetre. So, you, you know, that's where the kind of the art comes in, where you're you know, bringing in your legacy, if you like. Um, but you're absolutely right. You have to consider all these things. It's not just like, it's not your saddle is two centimetres too low, your knee angle is 135 degrees, it should be 142 degrees, up we go. It's just not like that. You know, what you do is you consider the ramifications of it do it, and then you monitor and measure the outcome. Um, and by the way, if, if the outcome is it measures great, but you turn around and say, it, but it feels horrible. I've got real, I've now got pain in my calf. It's okay, well, we're not going to do that then. You know, it, you've always got a person in there and you've, you know, they've got to be, they've, they've got to go along with you on the ride, if you like. So tell me about the, the midlife cyclist and, and what inspired you. Was it because of the types of people coming to see you? I mean, I'm imagining, I mean, I probably fit into this demographic of people who, I guess, you know, don't want to give up enjoying um, being as good as they can be, really. Um, and, and I suppose, as I said to you, when we first had a coffee, um, sort of trying to stay on top of the, the inevitable managed decline over the coming years because the 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 assumption i had was well i'm 46 i can't get better now i mean this is basically as good as i can be and actually over the last six months i've found just through things that i've done myself i've found that to be not the case at all and then on reading the book i realized that i'd done um by accident some of the things that um, are talked about in the book and uh, it really sort of gave me a bit of a drive to to look a bit more deeply at um, the way that I um, train and ride and also examine some of the tools because one of the things that you talk about a lot is the the intensity of training that 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 just because you're in your late 40s or 50s or even 60s you don't have to you know take the you know kid gloves approach I guess is is one way of putting it you can still train hard and train effectively you've got to be more realistic when you're in your 20s you're immortal you know you're you're, you're you know you're you're at your peak um you know you you evolved to be at your peak at that age you know, you have huge ranges huge strengths powers of recovery you know your body is you know fizzing with energy and ability to recover from huge efforts and assaults that are placed upon it and gradually over time, you know, your tolerance to that will, will, will naturally fall. But that doesn't mean your fitness should fall. Um, and so the idea behind the book is, is to assume that you want to train intensely and how you manage that process um, and how counterintuitive. If you want to be much better at cycling when you're my age, 60, you probably need to do a bit less cycling because, you know, if you if. The, the issue for me at 60 is, one of the issues is sarcopenia, muscle fibre loss. 
So, you know, pedaling at 250, 300 watts won't do a lot for sarcopenia. I actually need to do resistance training. Otherwise, you know, so you, if I want to stop muscle loss, muscle fiber loss. So it's a question of being rational and, and using science to train in a more sensible way and manage your training. And also when you're my age, 60 or nearly 60, you, your powers of recovery are, are lower. So if I go and start to do intervals or a high intensity session and it doesn't feel great, it really isn't great. You suck it. Don't kid yourself that you need a work ethic here. You know, it, it, it's not great. Your body doesn't want to do it for whatever reason. You've got an inflammation of some kind. You've got some kind of underlying, uh, you know, infection or maybe getting a cold or a flu bug or something, or you're just tired or you're stressed from work or family, you know. And if you go and try and do hill reps at 60 and your body goes, I don't want to do this, take it seriously. You know, you're not 20. You, you know, don't dig deep, get through it and hope that you can recover the next day because the recovery will be a lot longer. And, and it's just getting that across. You put that into context and giving people permission to kind of go, do you know what? I'm, I'm going to turn home. I don't, I don't feel good. I'm not feeling this today. Or do something different. Your mates go off and go and do, go into the hills. You turn left and you just go and do an hour on the flat, turning your legs over, looking at architecture and listening to birdsong. That's got a great value. And then go out in three days' time and do your reps. It's being intelligent um, about your training and being intelligent about where you are in life. You've got, you've probably got lots of responsibilities when you're 45, 55, 65. You've got family, you've got jobs, you've got colleagues that have got, you know, that are, are relying upon you. You've got your own goals and expectations. You know, you've got to manage those in an intelligent way. And training is brilliant because it allows you to function at a high level and be a more engaged, vibrant person. But it comes with risks and the risks ramp up as you get older. That's fine, but deal with them, you know, and be intelligent about it. So now I went for a run this morning with my dog, who you've met, um, and I just didn't feel great. Just didn't feel great. I'm feeling it. There's no, I gave it a couple of K to see if I would turn it around. Sometimes I do. I've got a few aches and pains trying to run them off. Didn't run them off. Well, didn't feel great. Felt lumpy and leaden, heavy. Had no spring in my step. Turn home. No, it's not happening today. Dog was a bit un pissed off but he'll get over it i'll take him later and i'll and i'll try again tomorrow or the next day you know and it, it's a and that and that's because your body's telling you i want to recover i'm not in the mode to uh have a big training dose a huge training stimulus i'm in the mode where i need to recover and super compensate and it's and having the intelligence to not confuse the two um so i try and use quite simple language in the book you know as well as science do you feel like you're fizzing with energy? Yeah, I do. Crack on. That's that. Now's the time for you to crack on. Are you not fizzing with energy? You, you know, be genuinely, be genuine with yourself. No, I'm not fizzing with energy. Okay, well then, easy, easy. Just ride. Um, I, are you fizzing with energy? No, I'm really, really, really tired. Okay, turn your legs for half an hour and go home. Have something decent to eat and rest because that's what your body wants, and you need to listen to your body when you get to a certain above a certain age. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. I mean, I'm just thinking back over my time as a cyclist and, you know, the old Cycling Weekly 
miles calendar and you'd fill it in and the aim was to fill in as many squares as possible wasn't it the idea load was the 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 king wasn't it it was about how many miles you did you know you did loads in the winter so you could do even more in the summer that was that was a theory anyway and i suppose you know it takes a to go back to that phrase again unpicking things and and i suppose we do you know take our cue from what the pros do but it taken a long while to unlearn that you know easy week is not lazy week that's something that i've you know only really kind of cottoned onto through following um you know set um particularly indoor training plans over um consistent period of time where every sort of five or six weeks you get a really easy week and you think well what's this doing you know this is um and i suppose uh so the, the book kind of filled in a, a few gaps in in my knowledge in that sense really that that it is about um, listening to how you actually feel individually and, and, and that the best training plans in the world only work if you feel good following them, I guess. Yeah, and, and that's absolutely right. Yeah. I, what I would say is that it's important to remember the performance gains are delivered in the supercompensation stage. The supercompensation stage is when you're asleep. When you're having really good quality sleep, slow wave sleep, level three, or uh, rapid eye movement sleep, level four, that's when you're getting your performance dividend. That's when your body's releasing human growth hormone. It's, you know, it's cognitively sorting itself out. You're recovering. You're getting your maximum passive recovery in these moments. That's when you're getting faster and stronger, not when you're in the hills. That's the training dose that provokes the response that's delivered overnight when you're having good quality sleep. That's that's the scientific relationship. You can't break that. So you need to have the right training dose, followed by the right nutrition, followed by the right rest and recovery. And as you get older, you you just can't afford any mistakes in that kind of in that line, in that in that relationship. There can be no mistakes because you'll pay for them in fatigue or mistraining days or you know being irritable or getting ill. You know those, those will be responses. And that's what I see with my clients. And that's really what provoked the book, which is one of the original questions. That's because you know, it's like I could see it happening. And John, Dr. John Baker, who's a friend and colleague of mine, quotes something beautiful in the book. Oh, I quote him. and he, He's got 10 million kilometers of data from professional and amateur cyclists. And as a proportion, us amateurs are working at a higher proportion of our heart rate than the professionals. It's like, that can't be right. So us amateurs are driving ourselves harder at an older age group, older age than his pro clients. And, you know, and, and I've, I've talked to other world tour level coaches and they say the same thing. It's like, yeah, yeah, you, you, you amateurs go, you guys, you just, you crank it out, you know. And, but there's got to be a cost to that, you know, that you're, you're not working intelligently, you're just working, you know. And that's probably okay when you're 20, 30, 35 early 40s it ceases to be okay once you get past 45 46 in my opinion that's when you need to be a a wee bit more intelligent and considered about it and also i mean the the point of being fit is to feel good isn't it right so when you go out for your three-hour ride it doesn't feel like you've put yourself through the mangle that's right that's absolutely right nicely expressed in one sentence that's right the reason we do this is to feel better live longer you know, live better. And it's if we, if we, all we're doing is embedding more layers of fatigue and tightness and inflammation and, and feel wretched about ourselves, we you know we've lost the plot here. 
And we've all done that. I've done that. You know, we've done that. And the idea is not to do that anymore because, it, you know, it has consequences and to actually, you know, live a little bit better. And if you're my age, 60 is different for you. You're, but for my age, 60, I think probably you've only got one hard session a week in you, really. Your body's going to take a while to go over that. So if you really go and do hill reps or, you know, a really hard, intense session, you've probably, you know, you've only probably got one of those bullets in your gun a, a week. But, I mean, you could still do that, enjoy it, experience the gains from it, as long as you do it sensibly within, you know, have taken a, a longer-term view over a week or a fortnight. Yeah, so that's so you do that really hard session, whatever it is, you know, you do that really intense session, then, you know, the next day you've already pre, pre-arranged something else. You're going to do, go for a walk with the family or you're, you know, going to do something a bit more gentle or you're not going to do anything at all and allow your body to super compensate and recover and and feel those dividends, feel those performance dividends based on the training stimulus. And then the two days after, then you might add, add a steady state in. And then so you're just you're being intelligent about how you're structuring your training, uh, because you've also got to maintain the rest of your life. You've got to maintain the quality of your relationships, you know, and you've got to look after your children. You've got to you know manage your job and your career. You, you need to be you, know, you need to be attenuated to those things, which requires you to be there and present in that moment. Um, you can't be completely, you know, fatigued because you've just done too much training and your body's now struggling, you know, and is, you know, fighting an infection. So it doesn't work. And one of the other sort of things I picked up was just kind of being a bit kinder to yourself, really. I mean, we've all had that feeling of like, oh, I didn't do must, you know, I didn't do anything today. That's now three days without doing anything. And suddenly there's a, you get that well, it's guilt, really, a sense that you're shortchanging yourself or, or you're, you're not sticking to the plan that you said you were going to do and, and you feel like you're failing. Um, but actually, one of the themes I picked up in the book is just recognising that and just being a bit kinder to yourself, I guess. Yeah, you're not a robot. You know, the, some of this, you know, you can have a training plan and an intention and a stated goal and you're going to do this and each brick's going to kind of build on the next brick to get to the point where you're going to go and do this big thing fantastic laudable all these goals are great but be prepared to change you know you might get flu or you might get a cold or you know you might pick up a little niggle or an injury what you cannot do is just you know power through um it just doesn't work you know it works it it can work when you're really you know when you're really young and in your 20s but it doesn't it can't work you know i can't power through now i couldn't power through that run this morning it just didn't feel right i felt tired I shouldn't have felt tired because I didn't do much yesterday. I didn't do much about whatever I did. Tomorrow I might get a cold and that might explain why. But, you know, whatever, what I'm not going to do is just go and, you know, head to the hills and go and do running reps up and down a hill when I don't feel great. You talk a fair bit about stress in the book, obviously physical stress, but also mental stress. And one of the great things about cycling when when it's going well is that it, it just it does seem to flush your mind out a bit. You get out and, and you come back and you feel alive and invigorated and all the things you were worrying about when you went out the door have, have, have evaporated to some degree. Um, but even even there, there's a kind of balancing act to play, isn't there? Yeah, and I think that's one of the chapter eight, the mindful cyclist. I mean, I'm, really, that's a call to arms to men, actually, really. Um, that, you know, sometimes you shouldn't really generalize about these things, but sometimes men, me, my friends, the people I know, sometimes don't balance stress very well. Stress and 
inflammation and training and you know this layer on this you know drink too much too much coffee too much training too much stress too much anxiety and we layer it on and layer it on and layer it on and we're not always good about talking about it or dealing with it and you know those things are quite those balls are quite hard to keep in the air you know and, and i do think women are you know you shouldn't generalize but are, are sometimes better at balancing these things you know um and one of the cardiologists that i was working with dr Gemma perry williams was was quite bold in the way that she sort of hypothesized why that might be and what effect that might have and what concerns that gives her as a cardiologist about the people that she works with um and i, and I think that's right and i tried to reflect it in the book i think it's I think it's right um, that, that maybe men are not quite as good at balancing some of these things as we could be. Yeah, and a couple of case studies, you know, uh, the, the stress levels are sort of filling up the glass and then you go and put physical stress on as well. You, 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 well, there is one case study, isn't there, where, you know, it, it, it could all become a bit too much with quite dramatic consequences. Yeah, that's right. And I think overtraining syndrome, is that the one you're talking about? Mm-hmm. So overtraining syndrome is now better understood and it's you know ever more increasingly understood. But that's right. Yeah, you get into this kind of, you know, exercise is wholly healthy. So you, it's a wholly healthy thing. You're eating better, exercising, resting better. Your body's getting stronger and leaner and fitter. And, and there's that, you know, there's, it's all good. It's a, perf- it's a virtuous circle. And then it, it doesn't. It starts to become not a virtuous circle anymore. It becomes a vicious spiral the wrong way. And I'm not sure we're good at spotting that, you know, sometimes where it's become, it's this great, wonderful, virtuous circle of increased health and vitality and mental acuity. And then we're doing too much and we're not managing that very well. And all of a sudden it goes a bit negative. I'm not sure we're good at spotting that. Um, and is there, a, is there a, are men less well at spotting that than women? You could make a case for that, I think. So just to kind of uh, su- try and summarise what is was a really fascinating read, I have to say. Um, but if you sort of summarise a few just uh, healthy golden rules, because, I mean, again, when I, I was even hesitating about asking this question because it, the, the, the book kind of demystifies this idea that there are these sort of hard and fast if you if you do this this will be it's it's a much more moderate message was what i got from yeah, balance and 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 moderation and listening to yourself and spotting warning signs perhaps a little bit further off which i, I don't know whether evolutionary or not but in your 20s you just plow straight through all the red lights don't you and in your 30s you maybe spot that there's the occasional amber one and then in, when you're in your 40s suddenly the lights up ahead are red and and you you don't really you're not really trained to spot these things you, they just suddenly the lights are red and there's not enough stopping time i mean that's a tortured analogy but that's kind of um you know, certainly how i feel about uh, the the aging process you you feel like you're still 25 i think the last word in the book is a king lear quote thou shouldst not have been old till thou hadst been wise king lear and that, i mean that's that to me and that's why it's there it's in the book as well, but at the end of the book, it's like, for God's sake, be, be wise before you get old. And that, to me, is the message of the book. Exercise is the best drug that the pharmaceutical industry never invented. It's brilliant. And I agree with you about what you said, that about the flowing and cleansing of cycling. There's something about it. It's just uh, even more than running. You know, it's just, it's, it is cleansing and it's brilliant. But, you know, get it in perspective and how it fits into your life and what your goals are. And be intelligent about it. You know, don't be, don't try and 
be trying to be a 20 year old when you're a 50 year old you know it does not a great look and it won't end you know won't necessarily end well uh, I'm sure that, that sounds like a negative thing I don't mean it negatively I mean it positively because there is another way you know I think I think there is yeah and uh, I think that's the message I took from the book because it wasn't really what I expected to be honest I expected it to be a book about how to wring every last bit out of yourself when you're older because that was my perception uh, uh, you know going into it without the you know without knowing um you know enough about i guess about you and about uh, the, the the message you were trying to get across but i mean i think there's a lot of people like that that think that more is better yeah and more isn't it you know better is better you know and that's why you know you need to think about your your training and your exercise and your life you know is like better is better not more when did you realize reading the book that it wasn't that book then it wasn't the very early on i mean yeah oh i mean from the start really i mean even from just reading some you know the the the, the blurbs on the back really I, but i i suppose when i when i thought about it because of, because of the way cycling has evolved particularly in this country um, lots of people discovering it quite late. There's lots of people coming to cycling in their late 30s, 40s, 50s, and then getting really into it. And I mean, I've ridden with some really, really strong people in their 50s and 60s, and I'm like, how have they, how have they got this strong? I mean, uh, you know, I mean, you know, some of them are lucky enough to have retired, perhaps, and are, are following pretty, you know, chunky training programs. Um, and I suppose I thought that was who you'd be appealing to, but actually not at all, really. You're appealing to people who want to live into, you know, live well as long as they possibly can. Yeah, and I've got clients who are in that cohort, by the way, Lionel, the guys who are like, they're in their 50s, semi-retired, they're, they're living a life of a virtual professional. They're tracking their FTP, they're, you know, they've got a, a coach, and a nutritionist, they've got all those things. But they, they the, the book landed on their doorstep, and it it's been quite interesting to hear back from them because, uh, you know, and, and it's allowing them, it's given them permission to slow down a bit when they need to, you know, because if you just think that your FTP is just going to keep ratcheting up a predictable amount every single week until you're 85, I've got some bad news for you. It ain't, you know, so be intelligent, think about things. But also your FTP doesn't go up just by doing another 20% more. Quite right quite right and, and anyway ftp it's like ftp is a, is a is a number and i talk about it in the book but it's not the only number it is not the only number um and you know it's trying to get everything in context you know so like, what what am i tr- what am i trying to do here and and then putting in the steps that make that possible you know that are scientifically underpinned you know they're not you know then not astrology but they're actually scientifically underpinned that's what i was trying to do but I think that, you know, to end on a sort of optimistic note, um, the other message is that you can see improvements, even if, you know, it, well, in 40s, 50s, 60s, you can you can still achieve uh, incredible things despite the, the onset of years. Absolutely. And I think that beyond everything, that's why I started. It's like, you know, don't give up. I mean, you know, set yourself lofty goals, achieve them, you know, really lofty goals. You know, be a 60-year-old that can ride a, a sub-20-minute time trial. They exist. You know, Nigel Stevens is one of them in the book, you know. It's like, you know, that man can ride at 30 miles an hour. He's he's my age. He's, you know, so we're the same age, nearly 60 or 60. And then, you know, how many, 50 years ago, how many 60-year-olds could do that? You know, none. It's, you know, it's remarkable what we can do now and what we are doing now. It's brilliant. 
you know, and, and I don't mean any of it negatively. I just, I, my, I'm just imploring people to be, to think about it really and, and then put the appropriate steps in place so they can enjoy it more and achieve more. Um, but it's interesting what you're saying about it's not what, what, not what people expected. And I think that's, I think that's one of the reactions I've had from the book is that I don't think anyone's come back to me and said, oh, it's what I expected. I'm not sure. If, I'm never sure if that's a good or a bad thing because it means, well, maybe you missold it then. You didn't, if you didn't get what you think, thought you were getting, you know. No, I think um, sometimes you need to be uh, confronted with your own ignorance in a way. And I felt like I was a bit. So, um, uh, yeah, too many training manuals are all about kind of how to get from, you know, naught to 60 and you're definitely going to do it. And and the reality is that you you might not, but you, you might still be able to, you know, make quite significant gains. Uh, and, and sometimes slow and steady wins the race. Yeah, and also you might want to get to 60, but maybe you find another destination. Maybe you, you deviate and find a destination you enjoy a lot more. You know, allow that, you know, into your life as well. You know, and I, uh, that, that, I guess that's the message of, of, of the book. This has been an episode of Explore by me, Lionel Burney. It was produced by Adam Bowie. 